welcome to Refuge Church Podcast. My name is Nicole and I'm one of the pastors at Refuge. This is our final week in the book of Jonah. If you've been keeping up with us or if you've even read the whole book of Jonah, you know that there's not really a satisfying ending. But what if that's the point? What if God wants us to keep asking questions? What if God leaves things unanswered so that we continue to build a relationship with him? We continue to bring him our frustration and our anger and our joy and our thankfulness. What if things go unanswered so that we continue communication with God? In Jonah chapter 4, God shows Jonah the bigger picture. The bigger picture that we'll see in this message is that God cares for all of his creation. All of our prejudices and biases aside, God cares for all creation and his desire from the very beginning was to be in that deep, intimate relationship with all people. Refuge is a safe place. 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 For all people. For all people. For all people. To explore and restore their faith. To explore and restore their faith. To explore and restore their faith. In Jesus Christ and His church. In Jesus Christ and His church. So just remember, if you're trick-or-treating, Bible costumes only. I like the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe because it's basically the Bible. That's a, that's a funny deep cut. So, hello, once again, uh, welcome to Refuge. My name is Nicole, for those of you who don't know me. I'm one of the pastors here. And I mentioned a couple weeks ago, the last time that I I spoke, is that a couple of my favorite TV shows are Friends in the Office. I love them. They're just mindless stuff that I can watch on repeat. People actually don't like watching Friends with me because I'll say the punchline, and it's just not enjoyable for them. For me, I love it. But I also love a good procedural. You guys know what procedurals are? I'll tell you. Don't worry. It's like Law and Order, CSI, you know, those like, basically it's a show designed to, to uh, give you a problem, tell you a story, and then it ends with a solution. One of my favorite procedurals is um, Castle because it mixes that humor, it mixes the crime, the murder, and then it just wraps it up with a nice, neat little bow, and it has, um, it answers all the questions, no cliffhangers. Because I'm not a fan of open-ended, unanswered stories. I don't like cliffhangers. I don't like not knowing. I read a book while I was on the cruise that had just a terrible answer with, or a terrible ending with too many questions. I complained about the book for three days after I read it. Like, just, it was awful. We'd be sitting by the pool and I'd be like, I can't believe the book ended that way and made the cruise a lot of fun. So, um, <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm a treat to go on trips with, so... So tonight, we're ending our series in the book of Jonah, but I don't know that we're necessarily getting the ending that everyone is really going to like. Jonah, if you've done your homework and you've read all four chapters of the book of Jonah, you've gotten to the end and realized this does not end great. It leaves you with more questions than answers, and it really doesn't wrap anything up. It's not a procedural. It's not anything that makes us... What's up, dude? Okay, what are you doing? Help. 
that is that is my uh, that's my child. So, um, so we're talking about Jonah, and uh, Jonah is used a lot to give us simple problems, simple solutions. Um, like if you disobey God, a storm is coming, and it's good for kids. Like if you don't listen to your parents, you're going to get swallowed by a fish. It's probably what I should have told him just now. But Jonah is taught usually with simple problems, simple solutions. But the irony is that Jonah leaves us with more questions than answers. There's no simple solutions. There's no simple answer to to the way that Jonah ends. So nonfiction, fiction, wherever you've landed as we've worked through this um, series, Jonah 4 shows us a few things about ourselves, about God, and about our relationship with God. And the first thing I want to talk about is that Jonah is a real dude. Whatever you believe this story to be, whatever genre, Jonah was a real dude. And because of my personal experience with this book, I kind of picture Jonah as a little bit jaded. He's a little bit skeptical. Like I was talking to Brian, I was like, sometimes I picture Jonah just like rolling out of bed, kicking beer cans out of the way and having just like that indulgent cigarette with his cup of coffee. He's just, that's the point that he's gotten to in his walk of faith with the Lord. But one thing that comes through the entire story from beginning to end is that Jonah is a real person. His humanity comes through through every chapter of the story. He's a real person with real emotions, self-serving intentions. He's a selfish person, probably because he's been hurt and he's jaded. He's got biases. He's opinionated. All of the things and everything that we as human beings can be at any given moment. Jonah is real, he's raw, and he's human. So to recap uh, from last week, we went through, they did a table discussion on Jonah chapter 3. So recap is Jonah goes to Nineveh. He preaches an eight-word sermon, which you're probably like, I wish Nicole could do an eight-word sermon. Like, she just loves to hear herself talk. I wish she could get it over with in eight words, but I cannot. And then uh, finally, the Ninevites hear the word, receive the word, and then uh, chapter 3 ends like this. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And any good storyteller would end the story right here, like boom, done, happy ending. We're ending on a high note. Everyone gets saved. Everyone's going to heaven. Woo! But that's not how it ends. And for any good evangelical or any good Southern Baptist, this is a good stat card, you know, 120,000 saved, like 5,000 baptized, 200 recommitted, 500 calls into ministry, like put it on your Facebook, put it on that graphic and get it out there. We did it. Jonah did it. But again, if you've done the homework, you know that that's not how our story ends. In fact, the first verse of chapter four goes like this. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. The message translation, which I love in this particular instance, says, Jonah was furious, he lost his temper, and he yelled at God. I don't think there's anything more real, more human, than wanting to or actually yelling at God. I don't know what your relationship with God is like, but sometimes I yell at God. Sometimes I yell at anybody who's near me, like Comcast. So we get to the heart of, um, so we start to get to the heart of why Jonah has been running, why he's been bucking the call of God, why he's been disobedient. And so we see that here in his prayer and his complaint to God. And so as with anything in the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, the original language is important here. 
Um, Jonah calls out to God and he calls God Yahweh. And this is how God is referred to a lot in the Old Testament. He's Yahweh in Genesis with Abraham. He's Yahweh with Moses. This is, this is, uh, translated, if you just take the translation, it simply means the Lord. But it's more important than just what it's translated as because Yahweh is the covenantal name that God used with the children of Israel. Um, Yahweh is the name God used when he established his promise with his people. He signed and sealed the promise as Yahweh to preserve, to protect, and to prosper the children of Israel. So when Jonah calls out Yahweh, it's to remind God that like, hey man, you made a promise with us and us alone. You made a promise to protect us, to preserve us, to prosper us, us, not them. So this is Jonah trying to remind God of God's promise. And in Jonah's human mind and all of his humanity, it doesn't make sense to him how God can make this promise to preserve, to prosper, and protect, but then save the very same people whose mission it has been to destroy the children of Israel. In all of his humanity, he believed that God's special love, his special relationship, his special covenant should not be extended to Gentiles, no less the violent, heartless, godless pagans like the Ninevites. Just like on the boat, Jonah didn't want to share space with those violent, heartless, godless pagans, so he went down to the hold of the ship. Now, the irony is is that he's probably going to get to spend eternity with some of them. You know, we're going to get to heaven. There's going to be people there we don't like. People are going to see me in heaven and be like, Comcast is going to see me in heaven and just, oh my God. I had an issue with Comcast this week, so they're going to be the butt of a lot of jokes. So if you work there, <laughs> sucks to suck. So, <laughs> so we see something happening in Jonah in the story that's being told that we haven't seen yet in the Old Testament. And this is some of the first cl- glimpses that we get of God setting the stage for something new, something better. He's setting the stage for the Messiah and through the Messiah, a new humanity where love and mercy and justice and relationship with God would be for all people. Ephesians two fourteen says this, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. In his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Can you imagine that wall of hostility that Jonah has built up against the people who literally persecuted and murdered and destroyed his people? And now they seemingly are going unpunished. I get that. I get that feeling, being angry about people who have hurt you, being brought into the fold of God. Ephesians 3, 6 says, and this is God's plan. And really, that's it. That's all we need to know. We could stop right there. This was God's plan. That's it. And his plan was that both Jews and Gentiles who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's people. Both are a part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. How strange a plan this is for Jonah to be led in on because for his finite human mind to comprehend Jew and Gentile, Israel and Assyria living together, that was not something that was part of Jonah's plan 
But Ephesians 1 says, even before he made the world. So before the foundations of the world was laid, before the Messiah, before Jesus was ever born of a virgin, God loved us and chose us. And he decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Christ Jesus. That's what God wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. One family, one humanity, all people adopted into God's family as children of God. And let's be real, let's talk about it. Sometimes that sucks. To think about that reality sucks. If you don't think it sucks, you are a better Christian than me. (laughs) Because it's one thing to be disobedient and run from God. It's one thing to get on a boat and try to get to Tarshish. It's another thing. It's a whole different ballgame. And it's a different level of emotion and anger. When you get angry about somebody else's salvation. You get angry about somebody else's success. You get angry about somebody else's relationship with God. Jonah 4.4, God says to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about this? And the argument could be made that God will go on to answer this question clearly and decisively and certainly for Jonah. But there's also room for the argument that this question mostly goes unanswered. It's a question that we get to sit with. It's a question we get to wrestle with. It's a question that we get to to mull over and pray over and try to figure out. Is it right to be angry about injustice and genocide? Heck yes. Be angry about that. We should be angry about that. Is it right to be angry when those who perpetrate the injustice repent, are forgiven, and brought into God's family because he loves and cares for him the same that he loves and cares for us. Now, if you are a better Christian than me, you're like, no, it's not right to be angry. But I'm, I'm not a great Christian, apparently, because I feel like this goes unanswered for us. And the beauty of this, and the beauty of Jonah, and the beauty of this story is its depiction of a real relationship. And we might come to find an answer to this question for ourselves eventually at some point. But this is part of Jonah's relationship with God. He has an intimate relationship with his creator. How do I know this? How do I infer this? What makes me believe this is who are we the most real with? Who are we the most vulnerable to? Who do we so often take out our anger on even when it's not their fault? You might be different than me. Again, it's the people who I'm closest to. It's the people who I love the most. Sometimes, to no fault of their own, they get the brunt of my frustration. They get the brunt of my annoyance and my aggravation. And having a deep connection and having a deep relationship with somebody means we have a safe place to express that anger and that frustration and that irritation. We have a safe place to be angry. And we see Jonah doing that with God through their deep, intimate relationship. We also see that happening in the New Testament in Luke chapter 15 of the prodigal son. If you don't know this parable really quick, it's one man. He has two sons. The youngest son wants all of his inheritance. His father gives it to him. He runs away. He loses it all. He's broke. He's living in mud with the pigs. And he realizes he messed up. And he goes home expecting to be low man on the totem pole. He just wants the bottom of the barrel job. Just let me do something so I'm not living in squalor. 
But instead, he's met with mercy and love and grace and forgiveness and is brought back in to the home and a party is thrown. And that's where we'll pick up. It says, so the party began. And meanwhile, the older brother was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants, what's going on? And he said, your brother is back. And your father has killed the fattened calf. And we are celebrating because his safe return. The older brother was angry and would not go inside. So his father came out and begged him. But the brother replied, all these years I have slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you ask me to do. And yet this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes. And you celebrate him by killing the fattened calf. And his father said, look, dear son, you have always stayed with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. Brian spoke about uh, Jonah being the prodigal prophet a few weeks ago. And you'd think that his brother, hearing that his Uh, This older brother, hearing that his younger brother had returned home, that he would be excited and happy. He's back. He's safe. He didn't die out there living on his own, squandering away his wealth. But the older brother was angry. So he sat outside at a distance, away from the celebration, away from the excitement of repentance and grace and mercy and forgiveness. Jonah, we see, does the same thing. Jonah 4, 5. Jonah went out to the east side of the city and he made a shelter there to sit, to sit under it as he waited to see what would happen to the city. He left the city, sitting, pouting, angry, complaining. So what do we see the father do? Going back to the parable, in verse 28, the father went out. Because he had a deep relationship with his son, parent, father to son, parent to child. He was not content to see his son sent out and just... Um, be angry. So he goes to him. He meets him where he is. And what is the brother angry about? The brother is angry about grace. What does Jonah yell at God about? This is what it says in the message. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this? This is why I ran away. I knew that you were merciful and compassionate. I know that you are slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn your back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. That's funny. I don't know if you think that that's funny, but I think that's funny because Jonah is mad about God being God, being slow to anger and filled with love. And Jonah and this older brother are mad about the same thing, the great compassion and love and forgiveness of God. They are both operating out of selfishness and self-righteousness, believing their ways are the best, believing they've done it the best, that the sinful ones should be punished and not forgiven. That the sinful ones should be left on the outside and not brought in to the family of God. The father in this parable, he is patient and understanding. He's not dismissive of his son's anger. He doesn't say, shut up, stop pouting, get in the house and eat some cake. He continues to operate from a place of grace. Likewise, the way God engages in conversation with Jonah, he doesn't dismiss Jonah's anger, 
But instead, he allows Jonah to wrestle with this unanswerable question. He allows Jonah to wrestle with this conundrum. God, in deep relationship with Jonah, wants Jonah to understand God's plan. And God's plan for compassion and mercy and grace and forgiveness for all people. God keeps asking Jonah, keeps the conversation going. And at the end of the book, we find that it it seems like it's an unanswered question. But that's the beauty of our faith. That's the beauty of of our relationship with God is that we keep get to asking questions. We We keep getting to learn. God does not dismiss our anger. And he's not so small and so weak that he can't handle being yelled at. Can you imagine if God was like, well, if you're going to yell at me, I'll smite you. Like, that's not the God that we serve. That's not the God that we worship. The father in the parable tells the older brother, everything I have is yours. I see you. I recognize your hard work. I know what you've done. I know what you've been through. You've never left me. You're loyal. So everything I have is yours. But everything I have is also his. Ephesians 3, 6. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. And this is a point that God is trying to make to Jonah. A new humanity centered around love, compassion, mercy, grace, unity for all people. And God tries to explain this to Jonah through creation. The last, the last thing I want to talk about that we see working through chapter 4 is God being our creator and being our redeemer, being in control of all things. From the beginning of the story, God has used creation and his control of creation to make a point. Even Jonah says, makes a point to say, I worship the creator, the God who made the land and sea. Jonah is then engulfed by the sea, swallowed by a fish. And so the final lesson that Jonah gets taught here is through creation. Again, God appoints or provides or arranges a plant to grow over Jonah where he's sitting to protect him. And for the first time in our story, Jonah's actually happy. It's brief, it's fleeting, it's selfish, but it's happiness. His needs are being met. He's experiencing the grace he thinks he deserves. But then God arranges a worm to eat the plant, and then God sends a scorching hot wind to burn Jonah's head. And just like that, we're back at square one. Jonah wanting to die. Jonah being angry. So what's the lesson? What is God trying to communicate here to Jonah? Well, the final words of the whole book of Jonah, verses uh, 10 and 11, say this. Then the Lord said, you felt sorry for the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly, and it died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all of the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? God was the creator of all 120,000 people in the city of Nineveh, plus the animals. I love that God adds that in there. Like your dogs, they're they're protected too. They're redeemable. Not my dog. He, Anyways. God's plan from the beginning was to adopt 
Nineveh, to adopt every person in Nineveh into his family. He had a deep concern for his creation. He wanted a deep relationship with all of his creation. And that's the last thing that we see. That's the last thing that we read in the story of Jonah. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? God is their creator having compassion for them because he wants relationship. And that's the last word, story over, the end. It all comes back to God's plan to have all of humanity, all of creation reconciled to him, to be in relationship with him. The book of Jonah, for the ancient audience, starts asking the bigger question. The unanswered, unended ending of this whole story is this question. What if God isn't just for what if God isn't just the God of Israel, but He is the God of all people? The creator of all things is our redeemer of all things. So therefore, this special, intimate, deep relationship that God made a covenant with Israel, that covenant, that love, that mercy, that grace, that protection, that prosperity is meant to be extended to all people. We all are adopted into his family. Shouldn't I feel sorry for my creation? Shouldn't I want to be in relationship with the things that I created? So what do we do with this unanswered, unended story, this cliffhanger, this weird ending of God asking this question? That's the beauty of faith. That's the beauty of our relationship with this God is we get to wrestle. We get to be angry. We get to rejoice. We get to ponder and contemplate. We get to keep asking questions. We get to keep learning and growing. We get to study. We get to seek. We get to find. We get to give thanks and worship and celebrate. But ultimately, we get to have relationship with our creator a relationship in chaos, in waiting, in harvest, in good, in bad. Thanking God in all circumstances, that he is our creator, that he is our redeemer. Because the thing is, is that we can't miss that God cared for the Ninevites and showed them mercy. But God also first showed that grace and mercy to Jonah. It's easy to sit and think that I deserve grace. I deserve mercy. A few months ago, um, somebody that I don't know, I don't, never met him before in my life, posted something on Facebook about me and the work that the church is doing here. Pretty much demeaning us, degrading the work that we're doing, talking bad about us with my picture on his Facebook. And I got angry about that. And I feel like I was justified in that anger. Anger. To be angry about somebody saying something incorrect and wrong and false and just mean about me. I felt justified in my anger. And so I did what every healthy adult with social media does. I stalked this man back to like 2020. Just like scrolled through his Facebook. And the thing is, is that I got mad about the success he was having in ministry. I got mad about the good things he was doing for the Lord. And I don't know if that anger is quite as justified as the anger about what he said about me. 
But then I remembered that the same grace that I have felt from God is the same grace that he offers to this person. Jonah is about us. It's about our humanity. It's about us being real, raw. It's about us being disobedient. But it's also about our relationship with a kind and merciful and gracious creator. Whose plan from the very beginning was to redeem all people. All of creation. To extend a love that left the 99 to find me. A love that would chase after me and fight for me. A love that makes me believe some of the most unbelievable things. A love that is never far from me when I'm wrestling and I'm doubting. It's a love that celebrates with me and it is a love that makes me say thank you God. And the heart of God and the point of Jonah is all summed up in that reckless love. I'm going to ask the band to come. And I'm going to read some scripture here. And as I do, I'm just going to ask you to do something weird. I know, you know, nothing too crazy, but I want you to close your eyes and meditate on this scripture. And it says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others on the hill to go out and search for the one that is lost? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he will rejoice over it more than the 99 that didn't wander the way. In the same way, it is my heavenly Father's will that not even one should perish. Not even one. Not one of the Ninevites, not one of the Israelites, not, what, not one of the affirming, not one of the non-affirming, not Jew, not Gentile, not male, nor female, nor slave, nor free. None of them should perish. Would you please stand and worship with us as we meditate and we celebrate this deep relationship that we have with our creator who extends a love to us that is never far from us.